I'm very optimistic about where the industry is. If we want to see progress and see real change within healthcare over the next decade, you need all the interested parties coming together and working together to drive change. Welcome to the Redox Podcast. I'm your host, Nico Skibaski, co-founder and president of Redox, where we are on a mission to make healthcare data useful and in turn, enable the frictionless adoption of technology in healthcare. The Redox Podcast explores the intersection between healthcare and technology. How is tech making a difference? What are the barriers to adoption and how are they being overcome? We talk to some of our industry's brightest minds, up and coming technologists and health tech legends that have paved the way for what's to come. One thing is certain, healthcare will change dramatically over the coming years. My hope is that you'll leave these conversations with a bit more context, along with a jolt of optimism to continue working for a better healthcare. With that in mind, I welcome you to the Redox Podcast. Healthcare is taking center stage in presidential debates. We're seeing a massive effort of innovation to digitize healthcare. Yet 2019 was also one of the worst for health IT security in recent years, as multiple breaches impact uh, several millions of patients, patients are becoming increasingly aware of their data privacy rights through HIPAA, and in response, they filed lawsuits after many of those privacy breaches. Joining me today to discuss privacy and other regulations and the impact on their healthcare industry is Matthew Fisher, a partner at the law firm Merrick O'Connell in Westboro, Massachusetts, where he is also the chair of the firm's health law group and a member of the firm's business group. Matt regularly assists clients in understanding privacy and security matters under HIPAA, uh, including establishment of policies and ongoing maintenance. In addition, Matt is also the voice of the Healthcare Du podcast, one that I've had the pleasure of joining a few times. Uh, and he's among the top 10 HIMS 20 digital influencers, so we'll get a chance to figure out what that means. Matt, thanks for joining us today on the Redox podcast. Uh, Nico, it's my pleasure. And as you said, it's nice to be able to return the favor for you and be a guest on your show. And I, I've always wanted to dig in with you because when I'm on your show, you ask me all the questions, but we never get to kind of understand where you're coming from, especially from this point of view that is so important right now as, as consumers are getting a lot more engaged and trying to figure out what the heck's going on with their care and how people are using the data behind all of that. So I, I want to kind of dive in there first, uh, you know, as a lawyer working in and with healthcare organizations, what do you see as the biggest challenges for them in terms of compliance and regulations? Some of the challenge, or if not the biggest challenge, is just the complexity. Privacy and security are getting a lot of attention, but when I'm working with organizations that are in the healthcare field, whether it be a digital health company or a hospital or, or other care delivery type organization or physician, privacy and security is really just one tiny piece of what they have to deal with when you're in the healthcare industry. It's, you know, it, it is very true that it is a maze that you have to work your way through. Trying to find that path is one of the biggest challenges. While I like to describe privacy and security under HIPAA as relatively black and white, which always gets me a few raised eyebrows. When you end up talking about the broader Medicare regulations or fraud and abuse regulations, which are ones that govern relationships between entities because you're worried about referrals and not wanting to incentivize or base relationships upon those referrals, then you really have to start going back and forth. And the way to get to your desired end result is really probably going to be a lot different from your initial idea. That being said, I think when you work hand in hand and have all of the right interested parties from a business involved, including that legal consultation, you figure out a way to get creative or innovative and get to that endpoint that you're searching for. And you know, I always like to say 
will get there because I think I can still say this, that I can count on one hand the number of times I've said something cannot be done, but the path to get to that end result is not going to be what you've expected. So I think to me, that's one of the biggest challenges is just getting that appreciation for the complexity and realizing that it's going to take some time to figure it out. Doesn't always apply. You know, sometimes it is an easy concept and you're able to get it implemented quickly. But I also think that for any big idea, if the business really wants to pursue that, then you want to take the time to think about all the different permutations and alternatives and make sure that you're going down the path that is going to be you know as beneficial as possible. So HIPAA, you brought it up a few times. I want to dig into it a little bit. I think it's been in the news a lot lately. People have been saying maybe we need HIPAA 2.0. I recently talked to some folks from HHS and you know they talk about HIPAA has a PR problem and that it just needs to be explained more effectively. You wrote recently that 2019 was a tumultuous year for HIPAA enforcement. What do you think needs to change there? And, and where's the industry going as far as HIPAA? And just, just talk, us, talk us through that a little bit and where some of this uh, discussion is, is arising from. Your reference to what the, the people from HHS, what they said in terms of it, HIPAA needs better PR, I probably don't necessarily disagree with that. From my perspective, one of the, I would say, biggest remaining problems, and I don't know if remaining is the best word when it comes to HIPAA, is the fact that there's still so much widespread misunderstanding and misapplication of the law and the regulations, despite them having been around for, you know, the law being around for over 20 years and the bulk of the regulations being around for almost 20 years at this point, still surprises me that there are fundamental misalignments between what people think it does and what it actually does. Can you talk us through some of those? What are some examples of those misalignments? Sure. I think the right of access, which is, you know, one, one of those kind of big headlines that go, go to the discussion points that you've been mentioning, you know, there's... So maybe starting from what it actually does is, you know, under HIPAA, individuals have an absolute right to request access to their uh, prote protected health information for, you know, it, you kind of drill down a little bit and it, it, there is some nuance, but for general purposes, you can get access to your PHI. And there are really only limited instances when that access should be denied. It's like you can be denied if it's in um, psychotherapy notes or if it, there are records that are being prepared in anticipation of or in active litigation between you and between the individual requesting and the party. Under the rule, those are the absolute rights to deny. And then there's other kind of more squishy circumstances around, you know, if there, it, it could present harm to the individual in a professional opinion um, of accessing. But as a baseline, you get access to your records. I will admittedly say that state law can provide create a little bit more complication there, but if we're talking about HIPAA, that's the broad right of access. There's also, you know, some kind of parameters around when when the request needs to be fulfilled, how it needs to be fulfilled, and you know, kind of the kind of limited fees that can be charged by an entity for accessing the record. The so the rule itself is fairly straightforward, but you still see a lot of barriers thrown up. One, one of the most common ones that I'll see is um, an individual asking for access to their records, having you know, either gotten a form from some other source, call it, you know, maybe, maybe they're working with a digital health company to create a, and they're trying to create a personal health record. So, you know, they want to pull in the data. So th that PHR company creates a form that meets all the requirements of HIPAA because, you know, the 
HIPAA does identify what needs to be in the form. They present it to, say, their local hospital where they've been a patient. And there is very frequently a knee-jerk response from the uh, care delivery organization of saying, oh, no, no, we can't take that other form. You absolutely have to sign our form. Um, That's just not true. (laughs) As long as the request for access meets the elements of HIPAA, that's all you need to do. It doesn't have to be on a particular form. Um, Another one which I think has fallen off a little bit in the past couple of years after uh, new guidance from OCR, but there were exorbitant fees being imposed by organizations when a request was made. You know, there there's supposed to be a limited kind of fee range, and it you know honestly it shouldn't be cost should not really be a barrier for someone to be able to get their own uh, health information. But that had been a problem, and you know that's why OCR provided some guidance. And then the other one is just the time it takes. Um, you know, HIPAA really sets a pretty tight time frame of 30 days and you can get one extension. Um, but then in 2019, for the first time, OCR actually had to enter into monetary settlements with two organizations relating to that right of access because they were giving people a runaround um, and not giving access for up to or over a year. Um, you know, So when you get examples like that, you really wonder, you know, why is this really basic right that's in the regulation not fully respected. And while that is, I would say, probably the most publicly debated and discussed area of noncompliance or uh, concern with misapplication, I think it, you end up getting extensions of that into other areas of the, of the regulations. And, it, and it, I would say probably on the whole, those areas of misapplication fall onto the privacy side of things. Um, because I think when you're talking about the security rule under HIPAA, that I think is a little bit clearer, even though there, even though the security rule is actually more flexible and less prescriptive in terms of what you need to do. But I think people or organizations have a better sense of okay, I need to implement security measures, and these are kind of the areas I need to check off. Even though you know, kind of again, a fundamental building block there is you need to do a risk analysis. You like, you just cannot comply with the HIPAA security rule if you don't do a risk analysis. But when you go back and look at pretty much every settlement that OCR has ever announced, I think, I'm not even sure there is one where they found that a risk analysis hadn't been done at all or hadn't been done appropriately. So it, that is a widespread problem. But it seems, you know, when... When, when there's discussion around it, that the whole privacy rule compliance really ties people into knots for some reason, where I think if you just take the time and talk with people to have it explained, then that can solve a lot of the problems. And, it, and it's really taking, I think, that time and attention to dive into the details um, where a lot of these problems could probably be resolved. Interesting. So I want to I want to go back a little bit to uh, some of the noncompliance that that you mentioned from health. Well, so so to to boil it down, patients have the right to their data, and and that's that's um, kind of what HIPAA what HIPAA gives patients is the right to access your data. And so when you make those requests to your healthcare provider, they have an obligation to to give you that data and not charge too much for it um, according to those guidelines, um, and and not you know, and give it to you in a in a reasonable time frame, right? Uh, and so that, that's what you mentioned is kind of two areas where uh, it, 
where, where we see some challenges, right? Um, I think it's really interesting where technology plays into this because from a, you know, the data that's that we're actually talking about here is the electronic health record, right? It's it's what's stored in Epic or Cerner or eClinical Works or NextGen or any of these EHR companies. And um, the ability to get that data out and present it to the patient in a reasonable way uh, is is where some of the costs are, right? That's that's what the health systems will cite as like, okay, it takes us some time to gather it, it takes us some time to to print it, or you know, what I see in a lot of privacy policies is to burn it onto a DVD and like give you a DVD of your medical record. Which, by the way, I, I have no idea how to actually get data off of a DVD because nowadays we don't even have those in our computers anymore. Um, so, where where does technology play into this? And and I'd love to, you know, use that as a segue to talk about some of the, the more recent regulation that's coming out around um, the the da- around data blocking and how uh, how it relates to how we actually give patients their their data, whether that's you know a PDF on a DVD or via an API uh, that is mandated through some of the new regulation. I think you raise a really good point there. If the health data is maintained in electronic format, then revisions to that right of access that occurred through the omnibus rule after, or that implemented provisions from the High Tech Act, which, you know, as we know, drove adoption of electronic health records by physicians and hospitals. You know, so that said that if the data is maintained electronically, then an individual can request to get it in this, you know, in the electronic format. So, you know, as you said, you can I guess historically, I guess that's the right term, even though we're still talking about the relatively near past, it could be on a DVD. Um, I I believe I've been seeing more of, you know, getting it on a flash drive since I think you're right. I don't know if many new computers have DVD drives anymore. Um, I know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know I personally, we I happen to have an external DVD drive at home, but I have a MacBook it's not even an option to ever get one with a, a DVD drive anymore. Um, you know, or the other way is to ask for it to be emailed or to you know, transfer it electronically. Um, and that is another one where there are a lot of challenges because organizations will resist that because they'll say, well, I'm sending it to an unsecure location. Well, HIPAA allows an individual to say, I want you to send a communication to wherever I direct you to send it to. Um, and if I ask you to send my medical record to my public G- or my free Gmail account where who knows what, if any, security actually exists around that, that's on me, the individual, what happens to the record once it's in my hands. And, you know, what I advise my provider clients, just document where the patient asks you to send it. So that way, if they complain about something having happened, well, you can say, i followed your instructions and I did that fully appropriately. So, you know, once it, once it's in the, once the data is in the individual's hands, it falls outside of HIPAA and it's, you know, there actually isn't really any protection or regulatory protection around it. Um, but kind of getting back to, I think, part of your question, which was, you know, what are the, you know, the, the kind of technical challenges around getting the data out of the EMR or the EHR and transmitting it? so an individual can access it. I, I would actually maybe turn that back to you because I think you probably have more of the the technical knowledge of what that looks like. But I do, you know, having talked with some clients, I know that is a problem. You know, like I think I had one client a few years ago where there was a concern about the time to 
respond to or write you know a request for access but for them they were trying to get images um imaging out from a particular machine and it was you know to their understanding the images could really only be read through a particular type of software and it wasn't necessarily easy to be able to communicate that or have that be fully understood so i it seems like you know, whether one would hope that the technology exists to be able to have the data be extracted and then viewable in a meaningful format, but that seems to be part of the equation for me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and you know, on the images side, right, there these large images that radiologists read, uh, typically DICOM, you need a special viewer, a DICOM viewer to actually go through that image because it's not something that you can just pull up on your phone and, um, and, and you know, scroll through like like the like the camera log. Um, so it's, it's an interesting kind of technical concept as well. And, and I'm wondering, you know, a lot of the uh, pushback, I, I guess we could call it that, that we hear from healthcare organizations, you know, is, is it rooted in administrative burden? Like, it, you know, they have a, a health information management team who is processing these uh, requests for, for data. And so they have to, you know, they have a backlog of requests they have to work through and they, um, you know, it, that, that's work. That's time. That's that's cost for the health system to um, to pull data out, uh, and so making making the consumer use their forms, making the consumer get the data in the way that they are used to doing it. Those are kind of administrative things that, if they can make people comply with with their process, even though you know they're not uh, obligated to to deliver it in that way, it, it could for sure kind of streamline their their processes. So I could see that approach. Or I'm wondering, is it kind of more of the paternalistic nature of healthcare uh, to be like, we we are helping you protect yourself by not sending you an email of your medical record, um, where we're kind of being, you know, we're we're uh, looking after you, kind of Big Brother like. Um, like, like w- which excuse do you think is <laughs> the the one that kind of puts people in those areas or or is it just really a misunderstanding of of the regulation itself optimistically even though it's not necessarily a good outcome i would like to think it's that first scenario you described where it's you know it, it is much easier to be able to do the same thing over and over as opposed to kind of customizing to some degree with each request um you know for the second part I'm not necessarily sure it's a paternalistic feeling so much as a fear of violating the regulation. Uh, And from that perspective, it's, you know, kind of goes back to, I think what I touched upon a little bit, which is, you know, say that HIM department gets the request of from me and I say, okay, I want a copy of my record and please send it to my Gmail account. You know, I think their fear there is, well, if I send it to the Gmail account, I've now sent it to an unsecure location and HIPAA tells me I can only send it to a secure location. So, you know, I don't think, so, if, you know, if you're looking at it from that angle, it's not driven by this viewpoint of, well, I, the healthcare organization, know better. It's more from the position of, I don't want to do anything that could in any way potentially be viewed as not okay, even though the individual does have that right under HIPAA to say, send it to this location or send it to that location. I I 
think a lot of it is driven from that basis of fear as opposed to the basis of we know better than you do. So some of the new regulations that we're expecting to drop any day now, the the, the final rules around the um, ONC data blocking rule and the CMS, uh, really kind of these proposed rules that we saw last year in in response to the 21st Century Cures Act, um, focus around, you know, giving patients more access to their data and specifically access via APIs. Uh, and, and the part I want to hone in on here is I, I think it kind of builds off of, of the, the rights that HIPAA gives us as patients, but uh, it allows patients to use any application they want. So this is an app that you can find in an app store on your phone or wherever. And as long as that application meets the requirements of the APIs, then patients should be able to utilize that uh, that application and transfer their medical records from their healthcare providers into those applications. Um, from my perspective, I think that's really exciting because it could open up this ecosystem of, of consumer health applications that uh, people could use for whatever sorts of purposes. And if you you know just imagine the software developers and entrepreneurs out there who um, want to figure out ways to add value to patients, the possibilities are really endless around that. Um, but recently and very publicly, Epic has, you know, one of the largest electronic medical record companies in the world has really put their foot down against, against that, saying that um, really these applications could come from anywhere. And a lot of them, you know, may sell that data to, uh, you know, other sorts of sources uh, that patients might not know about, or, you know, they might not read those privacy policies. Uh, and the big concern for them is that this is actually setting us up for uh, mass amounts of healthcare data to be um, to be to be used in ways that patients didn't actually want. Um, and so, on on one hand, I, I think of that as kind of that that paternalistic nature of of the healthcare ecosystem, saying you know patients don't have the ability to make these decisions for themselves. But on the other hand, um, you know. Do they have a point there that that patients, yeah, patients don't read their agreements. Uh, they may not actually have the sovereignty to uh, share data with, with folks. Well, what's your take on that? And, and how do you think this is going to shake out as we, you know, sit holding our breaths, waiting for the final rules to drop from from HHS? That is a really good point. And it's kind of, as you kind of rounded out the, the question with it, it isn't black or white. There is a lot of gray and a lot of nuance within what could happen, you know, while I think the presentation by Epic of, you know, how it came out probably colored the perception of it. I think the underlying question or concern of what is going to happen with all this data once it flows into the flows out through these APIs and goes into these different areas, you know, is a valid question, you know, because as we were saying earlier, you know, once you or I have our healthcare information in our individual possession, HIPAA is completely outside, out the window and doesn't apply whatsoever to our personal use of our own data. And if we're gaining access to that, to our information through in a tool or solution that's kind of advertised and directed to us as individuals, as opposed to an interface to another um organization that's within the or under the ambit of HIPAA then you're outside of you know arguable regulatory protections for privacy you know there you could you know 
you could have some protections through like the Federal Trade Commission if the the developer of the API is you know not being open and honest with how the um, data will be used once it goes through their system. But you know, as you said, any company that has any kind of attention to what they're doing has at least a privacy policy in terms of use that you know. I'll be honest, I, I draft them because I've done them for a number of companies and I'm sure one in 200 or something people would actually read that. Um, you know, I, I try to make it not that dense legal document, but you still want to hit so many things that it is difficult. Um, you know, so I think the concern that you could have all this data flowing into unknown areas is valid. I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that's a reason to stop the rules or to stop the development. I think it it should be used as a spur to say, and I think this is happening in some areas of, do we need a broader, more comprehensive privacy regulatory scheme? You know, it's well. You know, kind of. I think you alluded to it earlier, of saying, do we need HIPAA two point It's, you know, I think it's more. Do we actually just need? privacy 1.0. Um, you know, we have, you know, you have kind of bits and pieces, uh, you know, you have HIPAA, you have certain regulations for the financial sector, you have some limited stuff for telecommunications, you, but you've got this, you've got all these little bits and pieces here and there, but we don't have, you know, across the U.S. at least, anything kind of equivalent to uh, GDPR, you know, the, the general da- data protection regulation that's in the European Union, or something as comprehensive as the California Consumer Protection Act or CCPA that just became effective. Um, you know, from my perspective, I would much rather see one federal scheme around this as opposed to every state passing their own. Um, you know, I think if you start having all that piecemeal approach for for a comprehensive privacy scheme, companies are going to violate it unintentionally left and right. And it's going to become a major drag on business and operations. Um, so, you know, I think it, again, I don't think the access is a bad thing. I think, but I do think having a more transparent and informed discussion around what's happening will really benefit everybody at the end of the day. Yeah. I feel like we're, we're at the, we're really at the beginning of trying to figure out privacy and protection uh, as it relates to not, not just healthcare data, but all sorts of data. And um, for the past couple of years here, I, I think the, the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook scandal was probably some of the, the beginning of, of this movement, but it seems like we're on a path towards getting some sort of federal kind of GDPR-like uh, policy put in place. Uh, if, if that happened, what, when, when do you think that would happen and what would the effects be in healthcare? Um, because yeah, HIP, this, this isn't the place for HIPAA to kind of be rewritten, but I, I think that we probably do need um, something more comprehensive across all of the data that this new data economy that has been generated off of the amounts of data that consumers generate every day, including healthcare data. In terms of timing, honestly, that would probably be anyone's guess. It's, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily have very many optimistic views when it comes to the current political system being able to pass any major meaningful type of legislation. You know, I, I think you know, just personally, I think that is a really dangerous place to be in for a country because it's, uh, you know, if, if you have any type of scheme that's 
pushed by one party as opposed to anything on a bipartisan basis. And then there's just attacking back and forth. It, it creates an unsettled area. And you can kind of see that with what's happened with all the healthcare reform, where there's constant challenge and it's, you know, from a legal standpoint, really unsettled. And you never know if one day is going to undercut um, the, the structure you've, you've put into place. You know, hopefully privacy is a less controversial area. Although, I, you know, I think, there are so many layers to it and so many pieces that interconnect that anything that's done is going to you know, cause a wave of unattended consequences that are, you're going to have to kind of work your way through, you know, but while that public debate happens, you know, in terms of legislation, it can also spur public debate and uh, private agreement in terms of maybe self-regulation or self-control of how things happen. It's, you know, things don't always have to wait for uh, a law or regulation to come to bear, but you can have, um, you know, so, as I said, the self-regulation around things. And I, I am hopeful that if that comes to the fore more, you know, that might be um, actually more productive and more beneficial because it could actually, you know, pivot more quickly and, and adapt more quickly. Uh, and, you know, I think that's where consumer voice can have, have a role to play because if there are companies that are not respecting it, you know, you might see consumers move away from utilization of those tools. And if, biz- you know, if a business starts seeing its revenue fall or, you know, its usage fall, it's a pretty strong incentive to, to change how you do business. Um, and then kind of one thing I wanted to go back to, which I forgot to mention, you know, in that discussion around do individual, you know, do individuals fully understand how their data will be used by different companies? One thing that I've had started talking about, I think about a year, year and a half ago, and I'm going to be revisiting with a client is to present the privacy policy in an more, I'd say maybe graphical format or um, into different chunks. So that way it is easier to understand the different concepts that are being raised. And it kind of ties into research around, you know, what is the optimal way for people to digest information? So to me, that's a really intriguing idea because it means that the company actually is thinking about privacy, respects privacy, and is trying to figure out how can we get individuals to also pay attention to it and care about it and to be able to get a better appreciation for what's happening. So I think that kind of ties into that pub, you know, a, a public discourse and companies understanding and recognizing the value of having individual and consumer trust in mm-hmm, what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So we, we need more graphic designers working with lawyers, is what you're saying? Yes, because I, I will do my best to break it up, but I have a feeling that I will still keep it way too complicated and I will rely on better minds than me to more fully translate into really plain English what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one aspect that we haven't really uh, dove into yet is the concept of a business associate. And um, of course, this is when a healthcare organization, a covered entity, uh, they essentially can choose who they are working with, and and you know they they say I'm working with this vendor to help me with uh, this process within my business with telehealth, for instance, and so they sign a business associate agreement and uh, then give access to that vendor um, data about the patients that they might be you know working with together. Um, 
where, where this came up recently in kind of a, a scandalous environment is, uh, or, or I should say, uh, where, where the, the media really blew it out in a, in a scandalous way is uh, Google's work with um, the Project Nightingale and, and what they were working on with Ascension there. Um, do you think that, so, so from my perspective, I saw that and I said, yeah, that happens every day. We see um, literally millions of records being moved to business associates uh, through uh through these these interfaces every single day, um, as as these big tech giants like Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple are entering the healthcare space, are they using that business associate sort of coverage as ways to access data? Um, and 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 is that is is there something nefarious going on there, or do you think that's all good under the uh, under the law today? Well, it's hard to comment on what you know each of the organizations might be doing in reality from the basic premise of you know how to set up a, a covered entity to business associate relationship i fully agree with what you said of this is happening on a daily basis all the time and with probably almost all the patient information that you could think of flowing between covered entities and their business associates uh, you know it if you think about it, it healthcare could not function without that happening because no organization can handle all of their operations without subcontracting or hiring a vendor. So the flow, that kind of flow of data without people having to be aware of it is absolutely necessary and fully permitted under HIPAA. You know, that works from the understanding that, you know, as you said, the business associate, once you meet the definition of a business associate that's under HIPAA, before the covered entity is allowed to share PHI with that covered with the business associate without violating HIPAA, you need the business associate agreement in place. And what that does is it confirms the obligations of the business associate under HIPAA, which is for the most part is they have to comply with all of the security obligations under the security rules. So, you know, have all the different administrative, technical, and physical safeguards in place. And then it also pushes a bunch of the privacy um, restrictions and governing use and disclosure of PHI. So if you come from a, from that perspective, if a party or, or if two companies enter into that relationship, you fully expect that they're going to abide by the terms of their contracts and the terms of the law that applies to them. So if that's happening, then the data remains protected and, and used in a manner consistent with what HIPAA expects. So what that would mean, you know, using, you know, like a big tech company like a Google or an Amazon, for example, they can't just take the healthcare data and use it for whatever purpose that they'd want to for the rest of their business. Like Amazon, if it enters into an arrangement, can't take it to help inform its algorithm for improving your experience on amazon.com. That would, would, I can't imagine a possibility where that would actually be a permissible use under with in, in connection with the relationship between the companies. I think when you're thinking about big technology though and and coming into healthcare, it seems to come down more to a perception of intention. Um, you know, is it that as you said they're coming in with these stated good intentions but then they're going to, you know, take the data and misuse it in the background? Or is it, do they, are they actually abiding by it? But because there's preconceived notions about how these companies operate, that no matter what they say, there's going to be the feeling of unease. And to me, that really speaks to a PR issue or a public trust issue. Uh, and it's for 
one reason or another, Google seems to be losing that battle, whereas companies like Microsoft and Amazon are winning. Uh, and Apple seems to be staying out of the fray to some degree, although it, it you know it, they're kind of on the side doing their own thing without the direct connection in. But you know, and then just to round it out, you know, say one of those technology companies does enter into the relationship and then takes the data and, you know, with my example, Amazon takes it and uses it to improve their store algorithm. So you're getting, you know, when I go there and, you know, they have my healthcare information. So now they're recommending different things. If that were to happen, almost, you know, in all likelihood, they violated the business associate agreement. They've violated the terms of their contract, like other contract with, the covered entity, they violate HIPAA, so they'd be open to enforcement. And if that start, you know, so if that were to happen, I could very well see OCR stepping in and using it as an opportunity to send a really strong message by imposing whatever maximum fine it could. Yeah, and I, there's there's the skepticism that consumers have, right? And and that you talked about that um, even though their agreements, their business associate agreement, and um, their data use agreement with the healthcare organizations would would prevent them from doing that. We, we don't know what's going on under the hood, right? Like Facebook says that they're not listening to your conversations and then serving up ads on Instagram. Yet every day we see things that make us question that. And um, it's, 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 a, it's an alarming world that we're moving into. And I think that, you know, new regulations, like, you know, you mentioned um, the California Consumer Privacy Act uh, are, are really giving people, people, consumers, the rights to know what's going on uh, and and actually control some of that. Do, do you think that's like that's the right side of history? Like that's where the world is going is um, we have to figure out ways to allow consumers to to be in control of that? Or are we moving down a path of, of um, you know, this, this black utopian state of um, <laughs> these companies know everything about us and, and they'll be advertising and changing our experience, and and for for some cases for the good, right? That uh, we will have a, a very highly customized and unique experience on on any sort of application or website because of the amount of data that they can know about you. I don't know if it's easy to broadly answer what's the right path to go down, but I think what is an easier thing to say is no matter which path is pursued, having some transparency and having full understanding of how we're going down that path and what the implications are and what rights and you know remedies might exist will be helpful so that way it's not you're just being led blindly into into a particular end result but maybe you have more of a self choice or ability to control what's happening uh you know so i i think it all to me it comes down to always striking a balance you know if you swing the pendulum too far in either direction there's going to be concerns because it you know i think right now arguably the pendulum is too far in the all this data is being collected it can be used for any purpose whatsoever really and you know no one's really sure where it's all coming from where it's all going and you know how it's all being intermingled but if you swing too far in the other direction of an individual has full control over every single use or disclosure, you're going to have business grind to a halt. So, you know, I, 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 part of the issue is technology has developed so amazingly quickly that understanding and regulation and, 
you know, just considerations around it have, you know, have not been able to keep pace. And one, I have no idea if the tech, the, that speed of technological development is going to slow down anytime soon, but if it's not, that means we need to accelerate the other pieces. So that way they can, you know, begin to align with each other. And, and to me, that's really one of the places that, um, will help make a change, you know, cause it's, it, you know, just thinking about that speed of development, it's it, my, my wife and I keep saying things cause you know, we have young kids and it's, we hate to be the ones who are saying it, but it's, you know, when we were growing up, most of the stuff that's around today did not exist. And, you know, to see how people, you know, that don't know anything else interact with it really gives you a better appreciation for, you know, we need to account for all those different different viewpoints, but we also need to make sure that the viewpoints can be informed in terms of where they're coming from. Because if you just assume that it's this way, then I don't think you have you can make a decision that's fully informed. Another aspect that that is quite related here is the ability to de-identify this data, and so uh, there's there's many businesses that you know their business model revolves entirely around taking data that's acquired through various sources de-identifying it. I'm using air quotes that you can't see. And then uh, using that data for other purposes or selling that data to you know pharmaceutical companies for research. Uh, Flatiron famously had has a business model of uh, acquiring oncology data through their uh, EHR uh, that they that they give away for for free or very little charge and then de-identifying the data to be used for um, for research for for better uh, oncology drugs. Um, there's also so so on one hand we have we have that happening and going on, uh, but on the other hand there's a lot of people saying that you can't actually really de-identify healthcare data. Um, it can be re-identified through uh, various uh, data science approaches. Um, wh- what are your thoughts on on businesses de-identifying it? And, and could could someone like an Amazon de-identify data and then use it to um, you know if they had it in AWS and they were helping a health system with it? Um, if they de-identified it, can they use that to uh, improve the the products that they're offering in, into the world? Yeah, I think that's bringing up a new and interesting debate. You know, because I agree. You know, your air quotes around de-identify it really depends on what are you talking about. Um, you know, if we're looking at information that's covered by HIPAA, HIPAA has two ways to be able to de-identify it. Um, you can either have a statistician certify through their expert opinion that the data has been de-identified, or you can remove the list of identifiers that are in the rule, and in which case it's de-identified. And once it's de-identified, the de-identified data is no longer subject to HIPAA. Um, you know, the problem though is, as you're you know, kind of implying, is that there are so many other databases that exist out there that you can have information that 10 years ago was completely identified. There was no way you'd be able to tie it back to an individual, but now because there's all this other data available, you could combine it with an unregulated database. And all of a sudden now you've got it right back to all the individuals. Um, You know, so again, I think that comes back to having to have a broader discussion and think about things more holistically as opposed to industry by industry or segment by segment. Because if you look at things in a silo, you might think it's okay, but then it all comes apart once you bring the different pieces together. Um, You know, 
that being said, I think there, and I've had this discussion with others who are more on your side of things that understand the technology and you know understand what can happen. And you know, my you know from those discussions, I understand that there are ways to utilize technology to help improve de-identification and to you know help really mask the data so that way it can't be um, re-identified or become identifiable again. So it's there is definitely a utility and a need, I think, for de-identified information because you know it allows for um, you know at least in my view more innovation and development in certain areas. But you know again, it comes back to let's rethink how we run these you know, concepts and you know how they're applied and you know not assume that something that was okay ten years ago is is still okay now or will still be okay five years from now. It's you know. I don't think anything can remain static. And, you know, if that is appreciated, then it allows for, you know, I think more productive development. Interesting. I think we have a, we have a really interesting kind of years ahead of us as a lot of this is, you know, recently brought to the forefront and we're still in the middle of figuring out how it's going to shake out. Um, with that, we're, we're about a month out from HIMSS, you know, the largest healthcare technology conference out there. And of course, you are a digital influencer. Um, I'm interested to understand what that means to be a digital influencer of, of the HIMSS conference. And what do you anticipate is the top themes that we're going to see people talking about, um, as well as what, what you think people should be discussing at, at this at this conference worth, you know, is very much a meeting of the minds of the, the people who will be shaping both the private and public ways that... Um, Healthcare, is, healthcare data is used going forward. The digital influencer program, and I guess the, the one minor expansion I'll put in there is it's really a year-long program. It's not designed to be focused solely on the global conference, which I think is positive because I think to me that means that we want to keep dial, a dialogue and, and discussion going constantly. It shouldn't just focus on, you know, the global conference, you know, as you're, even though, as you said, it brings so many people together, there's still a lot of people who aren't there. So you want to make sure that everyone can be involved and you're not just devoting all your energy to one week of the year, but, you know, thinking about how can we be incorporating and building upon these concepts um, basically every day, Um, you know, but the program itself, you know, Honestly, I think it it's still in develop to some degree still in development. You know, this is the first year of the the true digital influencer program. It's it built out of the previous um, social media ambassador program, which I had the the ability to participate in the last four years as well. So it, you know, that really focused just on the on the global conference. Whereas I said, now we're really looking to. Um, have engagement throughout the year, but, you know, kind of some of the initiatives will be, you know, having thought pieces, uh, interacting through social media, trying to get to different conferences. So it's, you know, while it might be called an influencer program, I I mean, I certainly don't necessarily view myself in that light. I, I like to think that when I'm out there, I'm really just trying to learn from everybody. So, you know, my goal is to just try and get get as much information as I can from other people and, and to hopefully, you know, drive some connections among people. You know, so that I think is kind of the description of the, the influencer program in terms of, you know, as you said, shifting focus to the global conference, since that really is, um, 
you know, a big focal point for the year when, when it comes to the health IT industry for discussions that I think will and likely should be occurring. You know, I think tying back to a lot of what we're talking about of patient engagement and patient empowerment, that really, I think needs to be a continued discussion and a continued focal point at the conference. And, you know, I think some, some of the, my co-members in the, in the influencer program really come from that perspective. You have people from uh, Savvy Co-op, which is, you know, a co-op own, you know, so everyone can become a member and, um, you know, disclosure, I, I did join as a member of the, as a member of that co-op. You have um, other people who have had personal, you know, really personal experiences as patients and, you know, have shifted their role within the industry. So I think that is going to continue to come to the fore. Um, Depending on what, if or when we ever get the the rules from ONC about info blocking and interoperability that you were talking about, Nico, I think that will, regardless of whether or not those come out before the conference, I think interoperability and the discussion around privacy is going to be something that's going to be on everyone's mind. Um, you know, while it will be, I don't know how many hundreds of news cycles old, but the the epic letter. I think will still be a topic of discussion there, and, and that ties into the privacy and um, you know considerations around around the usage of data, and you know that that I think is probably the other main topic. I think you know it's not necessarily strictly privacy, but I think it will be you know what are what is the industry doing with all this data that is or can be collected and it, it is flowing through the system. It's there's too much being generated and collected right now to fully understand what the benefit that can be derived from it is. Although there are certainly, I think a lot of people out there trying to figure out how to extract actionable information from it. But I want to see that, that kind of dialogue continue. For sure. Yeah. And the, the Epic letter that you referenced right now, epic.com, if you look at their website, uh, they, they, they have a letter discussing privacy and portability of medical records that they posted on January 27th. Um, and, you know, who knows if that'll still be up by the time Hims comes around, but it is something that I think has uh, carved a little space in um, this this discussion, the, the the history of this discussion. I think it'll be a, um, a, a big piece of it moving forward. Um, so final question, we just turned the page to a new decade, to, to the 2020s, the roaring 20s. I don't know who what we'll call it eventually. Um, but this this concept of consumers gaining a stronger voice, uh, really really becoming um, engaged not not only in the discussion but but in their care themselves. Um, w- what do you think it'll take for healthcare to build this culture of compliance going into this new decade? And I, I'm just excited to hear your thoughts on what this new decade will look like moving forward. What can we expect from that? And if you're talking about a, a culture of compliance, you know, even though we've talked about a you know, challenges and, and some concerns, you know, even right now on the whole, I'm, you know, I think I'm very optimistic about where the industry is. It's, you know, maybe I have a, you know, a slightly biased view, but I feel like most of the companies that I work with are very concerned about these issues and um, very concerned about protecting the information that they're being entrusted with, or, you know, making sure that they're entering into relationships appropriately. So I think the baseline of compliance is there where I where I think we're going to hopefully see development over the next decade is to have true coordination and collaboration because it's you know we've had a system that 
for a long time has been premised on each you know organization and each clinician doing their own thing uh, without having to necessarily fully consider how that fits into the broader picture you know so i'm optimistic that there is still the, the movement and development in in quality uh, based care is going to continue to accelerate uh, you know it's i think it's been in fits and starts over i guess what's been almost the last 10 years um, but i see the the tools really coming into place um, that are going to facilitate uh, that transition. And that, that is where I think we're going to see a lot of attention. And I think that is also what builds off of that increased and stronger voice of the patient. You know, you don't want, the patients don't want to be left out, which is going to put, you know, and you've got individuals and you see this through a lot of care coordinators or patient advocates of pushing all the members of a care team who might not have known that they all existed before to, make you know to be on the same page and to all be communicating so i see as that kind of happens that you know kind of naturally funnels into a broader atmosphere of as i said coordination and collaboration and what i hope is that it means that you know all interested parties are involved in that discussion um which you know you, you you're starting to see a few groupings now but there it's not full and comprehensive and you know to me that if we want to see progress and you know see real change within healthcare over the next decade, you need all the interested parties coming together and working together uh, to drive change. Love that optimistic view to end this discussion. Uh, hopefully, this technology will bring that that increased collaboration uh, among all the different care teams to improve quality. So I love that. I love that vision. Um, thank you again so much for coming on the Redox podcast today. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, if you can just remind viewers where, where they can find you on the, on the internet, if they have follow-up questions or just want to follow some of the work you're doing. I'm always on Twitter. So that's at Matt with two T's underscore R underscore Fisher. And Fisher is just S-H, no C. Uh, I picked that handle probably long enough ago where I wasn't thinking about how difficult that is to type on a phone because uh, you always have to flip a few keyboard screens to get to the underscore. Um, but, you know, th so that's one option. Uh, you can always search for me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find my firm's website, which is uh, Myrick O'Connell. Uh, or I think if you probably if you just search Matt Fisher HIPAA, um, I typically come up fairly quickly. Um, <laughs> and I think that, which is always interesting, I, and it's actually kind of fascinating because I'll end up getting a, you know, random calls usually at least once a month from people with questions about HIPAA. So it's always interesting to, to me to hear those types of things. So it's, um, you know, but, you know, as you said, I, I love when people reach out and want to connect. It's, um, you know, kind of goes back to something I said, which is every time I think I talk to somebody, I'm, I'm able to learn so many new things. Uh, and, and to me, that's really a lot of fun. Um, you know, I don't even, doesn't have to be a professional connection because it's, you know, you never know where a piece is going to fit in. Thank you again. And we'll see you out there on the conference. Sounds circuit. good. Thank you. And, and again, thank you for the opportunity to, to be your guest this time. Thanks again to attorney Matt Fisher for joining us on the Redox podcast. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Please feel free to subscribe to the podcast series and we welcome your comments as well as suggestions for people you'd like to hear. And uh, speaking of 
guests. Next time, we'll be joined by Aaron Patzer, who is the founder of the groundbreaking financial app, Mint.com. We'll finally be able to ask him, why isn't there a Mint.com for healthcare? Of course, he has a new startup now called Vital, which is not the Mint.com for healthcare. And it's a AI-powered software for hospital emergency rooms and patients. It's going to be a fun conversation. I hope that you'll join us. Also, we have hymns coming up. It's right around the corner. If you're going to be there, come by our booth. It's number 6443. Uh, we're also having a party on March 9th during hymns. So check out redoxengine.com slash hymns20 for all the details on that. And one last final plug, we just joined the Health Podcast Network. If you're out there looking for great content, other podcasts um, that are around healthcare and technology and innovation in the space, check out healthpodcastnetwork.com. You'll see our episodes on there as well as episodes from other really great podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and have a great one.